Good morning, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on February 5th of 2012 under the headline, Homesteaders' plan to get extra land involved bigamy and murder. Here we go. One February day in 1904, a 30-something man got off the train in Hood River and hired a buggy at the local livery stable. He wanted to be driven to the homestead ranch of a man named Norman Williams, and he wanted to bring along a shovel. Bert Stranahan, the owner of the livery stable, was happy to oblige. Business was, after all, business. The shovel was a strange request, but he couldn't see any reason to say no. When they got to the place, it had clearly been abandoned for some time. The visiting man, whose name was George Nesbitt, poked around the buildings with the shovel, and then, as Stranahan eyed him dubiously, he started digging inside a chicken coop in the yard. He dug all day, four feet, five feet, six feet down. He was looking for his mother and his sister. Nesbitt's sister's name was Alma, and she had known Williams back in Iowa before he came out to Oregon. They'd probably talked of marriage, because after Williams moved to the Hood River Valley to file his homestead claim, they wrote letters back and forth, and he urged her to come out and file a homestead claim on the adjacent parcel. She finally did in 1899. Then her mother, 68-year-old Louisa Nesbitt, came out too. And for a while, the three of them wrote happy, open-air homesteader letters back to Iowa, relating how they were all working together to build a house and barn and various other improvements that would make their land productive and homey. Then, all at once, the letters stopped. The family wrote to Williams, and he replied that the women had left, that Alma had thrown him over for a younger man. Beyond that, he was very uncommunicative. The family posted notices, contacted authorities, offered rewards— nothing. Finally, in desperation, George bought a railroad ticket and came to Hood River. At the farm, something had seemed to guide him unerringly to that half-built henhouse and kept him going all day digging into its floor. And at twilight, he finally found something at the bottom of the hole he'd dug. A piece of burlap sacking stained with what looked like blood and several long silver hairs. At least now he knew. Back in the Dells, Nesbitt went straight to the county courthouse and reported his find and his suspicions. He swore out a warrant for William's arrest, and Wasco County Deputy District Attorney Fred Wilson was assigned to the case. Williams, when tracked down in Washington State, was affable and cooperative and apparently unconcerned. In jail, he made no attempt to raise bail. Quote, It'll come out all right, he said with an easy smile. Unlike all previous correspondence, Alma's last letter home had been mailed from a boarding house in Portland, not from the homestead. So Wilson and Nesbitt went there and talked to the landlord. They learned that the women had stayed there from February 8th to March 8th. March 8th was the postmark date on the letter. March 8th was also the day a Hood River livery stable had rented a buggy and team to Williams and two women, one young and pretty, 
the other middle-aged with long, silver hair. Assuming this was Alma and her mother, that would have been the last time anybody other than Williams saw either one of them. But the livery stable owner did see Williams again, returning the buggy and team, alone. Acting on a hunch, Wilson crossed the Columbia and checked the public records. At the time, Washington's marriage laws were looser than Oregon's, and many eloping couples ran to Vancouver to get married. Sure enough, Wilson found that Norman Williams and Alma Nesbitt had tied the knot before a justice of the peace there, six months before Alma had disappeared. This was particularly interesting because a record search in Oregon had showed that he was still married to a woman in Dufer, whom he'd wed in 1898, the year before Alma came out. There were some other issues, too. Skeletons in William's closet, as it were. As it turned out, he had been married not just twice, but six times. Two of those wives had died of poisoning, and he'd served three years in the Nebraska State Pen for assaulting and nearly killing a sister-in-law. But Wilson found the real smoking gun at the land claim office. There he learned that Williams was under indictment for forgery. After Alma's disappearance, he'd brought in a document transferring title to Alma's homestead claim to him, and the clerk had been suspicious, so he'd sent back to Washington for a copy of the initial homestead claim forms. The signatures did not match. Clearly, Williams was in the process of trying to steal Alma's land. To the prosecutors, it all added up. Williams, wanting Alma's claim to add to his, sweet-talks her into marrying him, then starts making plans to combine their parcels. But before that can happen, she learns he's been two-timing her, so she and her mother pack up and leave for Portland. He, having found out where they are, goes out and sweet-talks them into coming back to the ranch and then kills them both and cremates the bodies. The neighbors reported a huge bonfire on the property shortly after the women returned. Having overlooked one piece of bloody burlap, he buries it and builds a chicken coop on it. Ironically, if he had not done this, it would have been gone long since by the time Nesbitt arrived four years later. The evidence was fairly damning, but very circumstantial, until an expert witness took the stand. This witness was Dr. Victoria Hampton, a chemist from Portland, one of the very first female scientists in Oregon and in the U.S., Hampton testified that based on her forensic analysis, the blood on the burlap was human, and so were the hairs, and that the hairs had been ripped out of the scalp before death. And on that note, the prosecution rested, but they'd presented more than enough. Norman Williams was hanged for the murder of his sixth wife and his mother-in-law on July 21, 1905, in the last public hanging in Oregon history. He was 48 years old. By the way, there is more to this story, more interesting details than I have been able to go into here. To get the full story, you'll have to pick up a copy of Stuart Holbrook's book, Murder Out Yonder. It's all in Chapter 11. Key sources in this story have included, in addition to Holbrook's Murder Out Yonder, an article by Diane Gertis Gardner and the archives of the Portland Morning Oregonian. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. 
This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatorgan.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatorgan.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.